Here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Box Office Pulp, the podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight's monsters who may or may not be Satan. And coming to you from a half-flooded recording studio in the far-flung future of 2008, I'm your host, Mike Napier, and joining me as always is my by-the-book partner who has sex every night and then runs five miles every morning, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. My two biggest hobbies are the philosophy of death and astrology. As I know someone who's super into astrology, <laughs> those are pretty much the same topic, I've discovered. I know who you're talking about in the mental image of the two of you solving a future monster crime is the funniest <laughs> thing in the world to me. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think that's kind of practically going to happen at some point. But I want to paint a picture for you, Jamie. I want to paint a picture. It's me a few weeks ago. The, the world is shit. I mean, the world's shit now, but that particularly day, <laughs> that particular day, the world was like super shit. It is sadly a timeless content comment. Yeah. Um, Rutger Hauer had, had died not long beforehand, maybe a week, I would say, beforehand. And I just wanted to use media to make myself feel better. And I felt like honoring Rutger Hauer. I, I turn on my fire stick. I'm not getting money for saying that, unless they want to send me money. I, I boot up Amazon, and they recommend a movie to me they just added to Prime. A movie starring Rutger Hauer called Split Second. But Mike, what is Split Second? I've never heard of it. I read the description, and it sounds like it's a future neo-noir where Rutger Hauer is hunting a serial killer. So obviously, I press play, and a scroll comes up explaining the backstory for the futuristic world we live in, which is the year 2008. Dream big. And it talks about how the world's pretty much been destroyed by global warming, so I'm immediately pissed <laughs> off again. Because we're here. Like, in 1992, we were still worried about it, and nothing's fucking been done. So this movie has a lot to live up to and to making me happy right now. Because it's like, I, I even doubt it's going to sit down and watch a fucking neo-noir future fucking cop movie starring Rutger Hauer. And, like, I see a speedboat in the preview image. I'm excited. And then I've been smacked in the face by global warming. And we live in a world without Rutger Hauer now, so it's worse. And Split Second begins to play before me. And Jamie, as you know, that movie ended. I immediately made you watch it. Because Split Second is a miracle. Split Second lived up to <laughs> bring me out of the funk of the modern world and America in the year 2019. You see, this, I feel, is art at its most beautiful, whenever it's a work of pure bonkers imagination can turn sadness into happiness. Like, just through these, the alchemy of, oh, Split Second is one of the oddest yet weirdly engaging B-movies I've ever seen. And 
Mike, you have improved my life significantly by showing me this. I'm obsessed with it now. My, my life has been improved. I, I haven't stopped thinking of Split Second. God, I wish it had a better title. Um, yeah, we'll this get was there. supposed to be called something much cooler. Do we just want to call it Black Tide the entire episode? I'm for that. Black Tide's a Black Tide fits that goddamn movie like a glove. Also, it's just a cool title. It sounds Rucker awesome. Hour yeah. is Black Tide. Yeah, we can so, just pretend we... the killer is that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, finally, the killer has a name other than the killer in the credits. The monster Boris Karloff. <laughs> so Split Second is impossible to describe because it's about 50 different things at once. It's both a very subtle... It came out in 1992, and it's a very subtle, very subtle parody, almost, of... Super macho, ultra gritty, grim, um, like detective cop shit. Like you'd expect, like Dolph Lundgren or Stallone or something to be starring in this thing, or to be direct to video or made by the Canon Film Group. Um, it takes place in a grime and gritty future, but it's also a British production, so it has that British film grit that is very unique to British film, so it's not like a, a sleek, like, American, like, dirty city. It it almost feels like, like, London, it takes place in London in 2008, the far-flung future, in a half-flooded London that's been half-flooded by global warming. Like, everything's been gone topsy-turvy. Um, and it has, like, this gritty realism to it because it's, like, a British production, and it looks a lot like the Narrows in Batman Begins. Very much so. Like, it's one of those instances where the movie's uh, limited budget ends up helping it aesthetically because you kind of just see offices, apartments, and corridors yeah. when you're not just in the water. And it feels so claustrophobic. Like early, specifically movies from the late 80s and early 90s knew how to hustle a low budget into being visually dynamic. Like that's where we got... The giant spinning fan in an empty <laughs> room. <laughs> the greatest cinematographer cheat of all time. And it ends up being like a very realistic future city, arguably. Because there are, they have very futuristic aesthetics here and there. Like some of the guns are supposed to be kind of future futuristic. They have a Gatling shotgun, which is hilarious. Um <laughs> And, and also, it's kind of maybe supposed to be a little bit silly in the in the fact that it exists, but it's still very industrial. So there's only slight future touches, but very little. Um, and, and it's very unique. Like whenever we're like in the morgue, and there's like the design of it is uh, it's just surreal almost. So there's that uh, aspect. Mean the London Macrop the London Necropolis. Oh yes, yes. I'm sorry. Um. I, I want I want that sign like over my bed, um, so there's that aspect of it, and it's also a detective story. Uh, it's a neo noir. It's also slowly revealed to be a monster horror movie involving like the occult. There are so many things going on in Split Second. It's kind of disorienting. <laughs> like I Very. told Mike earlier. I had to watch this twice and read a synopsis to 
sort out all of the, the different things that are happening. There's <laughs> mysticism, astrology, sci-fi gene editing stuff, water. <laughs> There's a psychic connection between two characters. I, this movie is not lacking for ideas, both to its detriment and also to its favor. Like pretty much anything happening in this movie could be a movie by itself. Oh yeah, and it ultimately makes it charming. I think is the word to go for because it's so much going on, and for some reason, the fact a lot of it doesn't add up and make a lot of sense makes it more unique and kind of makes it work. Like the monster, like essentially, um, we should get into it. how Rutger Hauer plays a loose cannon cop who's been suspended at the beginning of the movie. Named Harley Stone. Who dresses like a Hideo Kojima character. Yes. Like, he's just a fucking action figure with a trench coat and glasses and a giant anime gun, and it's Rutger Hauer. This entire movie is very anime. <laughs> well, I think when we were uh, watching it together, I can't remember which of us said it, but it's it kind of has a 2000 AD aesthetic hardcore. Yeah, yeah, you brought that up. Like it's... Shot. Yes, it's a future shock story. It's totally a fucking future shock story. Um, and we'll get into how that's even more obvious later. Um, like, so he's, he's uh, Stone, who's just called dramatically Stone throughout the entire movie. Um, and being called Harley is a dramatic reveal halfway through. <laughs> I went Eden Sinclair with it. Who's been, tra who's like hardcore tracking a serial killer who steals hearts from their victim. And it's slowly revealed over the course of the movie that the serial killer is inhuman until it's finally shown to just be a full on fucking monster, a demon, possibly Satan himself. But we don't really know because the movie can't decide. And because the movie can't decide, that plot works better. Yeah, there's this emphasis on the creature's connection with rats and its connection with the waters rising. It's like, oh, there's all this astrological stuff <laughs> thrown in there that he's a Scorpio, which is the sign tied closest to the devil. And it's 2008 is the year of the rat. So it's almost portrayed like the world is coming to an end. And yeah. The killer is just the beast of the apocalypse who's here to be sci-fi Satan as everything goes to shit. And there are so many different, like you said, so many almost conflicting explanations for why it's there. Like, it's sentient, but it's not quite human. But there's also so much lip service paid to a disease that's making the rats feral and turning them into super rats, which may or may not connect to the monster, but also it's absorbing the DNA of each person it's killing by eating the hearts, which may be it absorbing their souls to become more monstrous or just absorbing their DNA. But either way, something sentient is trying to become a demon through ritualized murder in a sci-fi setting. That is fucking fascinating to me. And acts like a serial killer, like taunts the police and leaves clues and uses weapons, like uses a gun at one point. 
that's so fucking cool, honestly. Like, there's no better way to put it. It's really cool. Like, like you don't see that. Yeah, like, you don't see that. And fucking Rutger Hauer's badassing his way around this city being crazy. Because Stone is just out of his fucking mind trying to track right. this thing. It's just like, he's... Hauer's being super, like, scenery-chewing over the top. Also kind of reminding you that Oh, Howard is multifaceted. Like, he can do comedy, but he's like, I was reminded of, because at first glance, you think, oh, Howard's putting in, like, this awful performance. Like, what is he doing? And it reminds me of, until you dig in, you at first glance think Adam West is putting in a bad performance as Batman. Until you realize, like, oh, no, he's hyper aware of what's going on. And this is a choice for comedic purposes. Howard's doing the same thing. Howard is putting on a slight comedic performance, but because the movie never winks at the camera to let you know there's self-awareness going on in the proceedings, Howard doesn't do it either. So he's being a parody of these other action guys at the time and this like particular style, but he's also doing it while being dead straight and being crazy and chewing the scenery at the same time and Howard was in love with the script so it's that's done intentionally to the service of the film not just like to amuse himself yeah he's not like making fun of it by doing that he's adding to it like the whole psychic connection stuff between him and the monster that's kind of like driving a lot of the plot because the monster attacked him previously and like killed his partner and like left his mark on him. So he's like killing him, will, like complete the circle, uh, uh, like all this other stuff. Mark. Yes, because they're both Scorpios. Like it's a whole thing and makes he no sense, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, like the psychic stuff was mostly Howard's idea. Like he got really into it and going more into Howard's um, performance. What I really loved, and I noticed this a lot more when, when I showed it to you and we were rewatching it, Harley, uh, uh, Stone, sorry, I did not mean to accidentally call him Harley, Stone. You haven't earned it yet, Mike. Stone suffers from PTSD very subtly, and he has very realistic panic attacks. Howard's doing, like, really realistic stuff with the PTSD and the panic attacks, and like his anxiety and all that, and then layering all this over the top, like wink at the like kind of winking at the style of film stuff on top of it. Yeah, it's it's a film where if you're watching it and not really engaging with it, you're just gonna say, I I've seen this movie before. Yeah. But watching it objectively you realize, no, that's the entire point, is that you've seen this movie before. Yeah. Like, they're playing with what was very much a driving force in pop culture at the time. Like, you think superheroes are big in the 20-teens? Remember when, like, every third movie was a buddy cup film? <laughs> like, that was a genre onto its own at that point with it that had kind of reached self-parody even before Split Second. So, seeing how that stuff transplanted to a science fiction setting with all these crazy ideas and then layering stuff like that. Like 
the cracks and stones cartoon character bravado revealing like legit pathos from a legit actor like in a, a weird comparison it kind of reminds me of rick and morty a little bit in that sense yeah I, yeah no that so, makes like, sense to of, me where all of the emotional weight comes from here's this ridiculous scenario and here's this one little crack in the glass where you see actual truth and like actual human sadness yeah in like the most bonkers of scenarios and just before before we get away with it you mentioned stone's psychic connection that uh howard uh wanted them to focus more on that connection is anytime the killer is near howard can hear his heartbeat deafening in his ears and again th that's an idea for a movie by itself like yeah. a cop is chasing a serial killer and he can hear his heartbeat. Where's Heartbeat starring Rutger Hauer? There's like, okay, this movie is like being rewritten like every single day on set. So you just get different ideas for different movies that keeps getting flooded into this fucking plot. And each is more interesting than the last. And we should say this movie is by the writer of The Fast and the Furious and Hollow Man and shit. Like, so it's a guy this, this, who knows what he's doing. Yeah, so it's not like just being pulled out of the fucking ether. This is actually like kind of coming from a place, and it's from an earlier script he had called Pentagram that was a little bit more straightforward and didn't take place in the future and, and stuff, but it was a little bit too close to... What's the name of that Lou Diamond Phillips movie? Oh, like the the final power or something. Yeah, I remember the, seeing the VHS at Blockbuster all the time unpurchased that was yeah. the first power yes night god that was yes. 1990 and it was kind of just that plot um probably better but just that plot so it ended up getting moved into like the future and like all this other shit starting layered on top of it but like you said it's by someone who does know what they're doing um and then you end up bringing like rutger hauer and it's so it's all of these arguably overcooked ideas like it's not it's not that the movie's undercooked. It's got too many fully cooked ideas thrown into it at once, and it's like they're all compounding on one another and they're all not like locking into place. It feels like a season of an anime series condensed into like an hour twenty. Yeah, but it makes it so fucking zany that it's why it's it's part of why it's awesome. And because it ha but like that's just like the plot mechanics stuff. Like you said, like, it's all very fascinating, but, like, the heartbeat thing, the psychic connection, the all the astrological stuff. But I think what works is, like, all, because that is being treated, like, because of all the rewriting, it makes it more and more B and C movie. But what, like, kind of drives the movie mainly is the interaction between Stone and his new by-the-book partner. <laughs> Dick Durkin. The greatest name any character has ever had in the history of fiction. And this and is a plot point. <laughs> this character, I feel, is what... I can't believe I'm about to say this. Dick Durkin makes split second make sense to me. Yes, 100%. Durkin is the fucking secret weapon of split second. Because this character is the most over-the-top parody of the by-the-book partner who's secretly capable I have ever seen. Like, if you thought Trevette on 
Walker, Texas Ranger, was over the top. <laughs> I think Durkin is a super genius who's an expert in multiple fields and is a perfect specimen of physical health and makes love to his beautiful girlfriend every night. Like, he's just Ozymandias, but he's this nerdy dude with, like, Peter Parker glasses and a really milquetoast performance. Like, they're That's leaning weird. into that trope so hard, it's almost airplane levels of parody. Yeah, and they do it without ever showing their hand that they're aware of it. That's what's brilliant. Like, it's one of the most interesting, most interestingly done parodies I've ever seen because it reminded me so much of, I remember saying with Guardians of the Galaxy that that movie was great because it's self-aware but never ever winks at the camera to undercut itself. Split Second's very much the same way. It never shows you that it's aware of what it's doing. So it can take itself seriously when it wants to and just be a cool fucking monster, like horror, noir, future detective movie. Or it can be like this parody of action movies. And Durkin is a perfect example of that because the brilliance of that character is then the reveal that he has sex every single night with his beautiful <laughs> girlfriend. That's repeated like five times in this movie. They're very proud of that joke. Like there's a because... whole there's like a whole like alpha male, beta male role reversal thing. Yes. Going on. Like I think I made the comment afterwards. Durkin, like it's it's like Big Trouble in Little China. Durkin's the actual hero of the yes. movie by being a being a gentle intellectual, whereas Stone's just kind of a buffoon. Stone is just insane. He's a series of cop on the edge things. Also, you know, fuck, you fucking know who Durkin is? The original version of Winston in Ghostbusters yes. who's going to be played by Eddie Murphy. Like, it's the yeah. exact same joke. Like, here's just this side character who's perfect. Yeah, who's just, mo who's just more capable than the main character. And an another brilliant thing, I, what I absolutely loved was Durkin becomes more perfect by losing his mind slowly during the course of the movie. <laughs> like, it's so, it's, it's hilarious. Yes, like, it's hilarious, but it's also him taking on Stone's qualities in a lot of ways. Like, he ends up seeing the monster, and in a very Lovecraftian sort of way, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of Lovecraftian shit going on. Like, a lot of people seem to lose their mind whenever they see the monster. Durkin just fucking loses it and just goes further and further down into fucking insanity. But he's still just as smart, so he ends up, like, becoming this amalgamation between Stone and Durkin into, like, this whole new character. And it's like, they've come to have this respect, and you just love seeing these two characters interact because it's so fucking batshit. And, and it's so all enjoyable. with, like, Saturday morning cartoon dialogue. Yes. <laughs> but all this complex stuff is going on. <laughs> it was like you're watching a really heavy episode of G.I. Joe. And there's so many, like, little character moments. Like, Stone has a relationship with the Rottweiler that belongs to the bouncer of a club he goes into sometimes. Like, what you think is a, like, just a throwaway joke, but no, that's that's returned to throughout the movie. He goes to the club and he just wants to talk to the dog. 
I know you he saw something, Constable Gruffers. He calls the dog Dickhead. He He's shows it aggressive. its badge. He shows the dog his badge. This is like and the first happy fucking when the dog scene. Recognizes it. Yes, like this is the first fucking scene in the movie. Like he ends up interrogating the dog at one point. Like it's just like, and the whole reasons like, and you end up finding out it's like. Oh, he's just happy the dog saw something, because it means he's not crazy. <laughs> so even that kind of means something that's a little sad. Yeah. I, uh... And there's... And something that's been on my mind a lot since watching the film is there really was this streak of crime-based genre movies around this time where writers would just kind of shitpost a plot made out of all the stuff they liked and then connect it all as best as they could and then toss in a detective. Like, we saw this with Cobra, with I Come in Peace, the Dolph Lundgren is a dirty cop fighting an alien who's killing junkies movie, which is... It's basically this, but terrible, like, unwatchably bad. Yeah, like yeah. I love un I love un I come in peace, but that's that's a it's movie. Hard. That's a party movie. Yeah, it it, weirdly, it it's a tough one. Weirdly, I feel like End of Days was the the like the last little return to that before that went away forever. Yeah, that was like, kind let's of a take swan this cop song. movie and throw in Satan. And they're all like very gritty and dark. Yeah, like obviously, uh, Split Second is the best of all of those. But yeah, you see, do see like like starting with Cobra, this hunger for movies, for traditional movies to get weirder. Yeah, and I feel like that that's a promise that that's only just now getting really delivered on with some of the weird ass shit we're seeing d these days. Like the fact that movies like Cop Car exist amazes me. Like that's <laughs> that's the kind of stuff these writers wanted to be writing when they were making these crazy uh, mashups. Very much like it was a, it was a type of movie that was ahead of its time because it was still slogging through a lot of genre stuff at the time. So it ended up being relegated, um, you know, to that directive video, you know, blockbuster shelf uh, sort of subgenre. So it was trying to break through, but it didn't have the resources, it wasn't given the time, wasn't given the interest, wasn't usually given the talent. But it was this desire to, yeah, we've had a lot of, like, the straightforward things. Can we just get fucking, like, how many of those movies just had occult shit for no fucking reason? <laughs> Why is there occult shit in Cobra? Why are there serial killers in Cobra? Just, just, we, we just want to do something. And, and, and with Split Second, you do... To me, it's one of the most successful ones because it's one of the few that actually is self-aware enough about its own quality to create something. Like, that is a world that I believe exists and seems to also be aware of where it's falling. There's, um, they go to a, um, this train, this abandoned train station at the end of the, for the final confrontation with the monster where we finally get to see the fucking thing. Um, At last, because you this thing is a fucking xenomorph times ten. You just see a black streak and the silhouette of some dude eating the fuck out of there. Whoop, 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 whoop. Um, <laughs> Future eat. And the the sub the subway system, the train station is uh, called Cannon, like the Cannon Street Station. 
There's and no way it's not intentional. It has to be. It has to be a reference to the Canon Film Group. It has to be. Like with how this movie, like with what this movie has shown us up until that point, that is a fucking reference. I don't care what anybody says. I have not found proof of it, but that is definitely an intentional fucking reference because it has the like, chink because it's half parody of canon movies yeah it feels like people who are clearly fans of like enter the ninja and like invasion usa and shit and thought let's do this but we're in on the joke like it reminded yeah. me a little bit of another uh similar movie i'd say was chud yeah like chud chud's a bit more uh it's less in love with its source material and a bit more on the side Pinnacle. of poking fun at it, but yeah, it's very much the same sensibility of let's do our version of one of these things, but let's talk about that monster design, which ho, ho. was designed in three motherfucking weeks because this movie did not have long to cook at all. God, no. And because it was constantly being rewritten, fuck, I don't know if it was even supposed to be a goddamn monster until three weeks before it showed up on film. Um, so the big thing, there, there's the monster, things in the movies that don't line up with it being a monster, like certain, yeah. certain shots. Stone totally sees it at one point, And for some reason does not comment on the fact that it's a fucking monster. It's really weird. Um, so that was a last minute addition. And also that entire third act is even filmed by the director who was exhausted from all the rewrites and shit. So a TV director actually stepped in for additional photography. Um, yeah, Tony Malum was the orig the main director who's uh, mostly done some TV stuff. The finale was filmed by Ian Sharp, who is like a big deal in the world of Second Unit. Like he worked on yeah. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, GoldenEye. Like I think he directed all the action scenes in GoldenEye, which is impressive. And honestly, you can tell it changes directors. Oh, it just becomes it becomes that movie, but with a budget for like yeah. fifteen minutes. I I just feel like um, he just knew how to work with the money, maybe a little bit better or something. Because it's not like Split Second is poorly directed at all. I actually love how fucking well it's directed. It's like, occasionally quite beautiful. Yeah, it's the cinematography is is gorgeous. Um, it. it the way he frames scenes, uh, the way he paces scenes, like, the way the city's filmed, like, it really does create a fucking world. Um, but that scene, that entire third act kind of takes it over the top, where it has this, like, added sleekness, I think, to it. Um, so the monster is designed by Stephen motherfucking Norrington. It's a Norrington special. <laughs> and Norrington had three weeks to design it. Um, Norrington, the exact same time as this, was also working on Alien 3, um, which I feel like shows, because oh yeah, uh, this monster is fucking awesome looking. You don't get to see a lot of it, but it's pretty much if you took, like, I I've heard this comparison a billion times, but it's true. If you took the Xenomorph and Venom and just smashed them together, um, and, and I've actually come to, as soon as I saw it, Here's a popped up on screen. I feel like if you, if anyone listening is familiar with the Adi Shankar produced, uh, Joe Lynch directed Venom short film, Truth and Journalism. Um, if you, if you're not, go watch it. It's a little hard it's to amazing. find these days, but watch it. 
Um, it's on the, uh, Vimeo. I watched it yes. just this morning, so it's still hosted on that. Vimeo don't give a fuck about copyright. <laughs> um, if you see the Venom design in that film, it is super the monster in split second. Um, because there, the, the that I, that Venom design always struck me as having such a unique head shape. Like I don't know if you felt the felt the same way. It, it like I yeah, never seen very elongated. That. Yeah, it, it just has a, such a peculiar shape to it. And then I saw that shape exactly in the split-second monster. Considering Joe Lynch's sensibilities, it would not surprise me one iota if he's a fan, or at least a fan of the design. Because yeah. this design got around, like it was, I think it was on a Fangoria cover. Yeah, I found a Fangoria article that was actually about split-second, had a full body shot of the monster, and... Uh, publicity-wise, they used full shots of the monster and publicity all over the place, despite him being in maybe a minute and 30 seconds of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of screwed them. That that and opening the week of the L.A. riots kind of sealed this movie's fate, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about that design is... You have, like, the Venom look. You have the Xenomorph aesthetic. And then you have a black visor. Yeah. For seemingly no reason. <laughs> yeah, like, riveted into the monster's flesh. Just this black, sleek visor. So he looks like naked Judge Death. And would you and point like it that's out? that's very intentional. Yeah, you pointed out the Judge Death thing. Because I was tracking my brain, like my mind kept going to, oh, you know, the um, the Batman who laughs looks a lot like the monster in Split Second. And then you brought up fucking Judge Death, and there is no fucking way, knowing that Norrington designed it, like the Xenomorph stuff had to come because he was working on Alien 3, and he just had to pull stuff together. It has Xenomorph morph teeth. Um, it would not surprise me if, like, materials were not reused. Yeah, there's definitely some venom in there that I feel like is probably intentional as well. But the biggest thing is, you know, because it's Norrington, Judge Death went into that fucking design. He has the long, spindly fingers. It's impossible. Yeah, he has the dead-on fingers. He has, like, these razor fucking claws, too. It's it's like a cool scene where he's, like, ripping through the roof of a fucking subway car using them, too. But... He, the, it's the only way the visor makes sense because when you see publicity photos of this fucking thing, get a nice clear shot of this big fucking grin, the visor in his face, the black head, that's just Judge Death. Like, he is 100% live-action Judge Death. And Norrington's clearly just like, fuck, how am I going to create a fucking monster in three weeks? And just pulled from shit that he liked. And knowing Norrington, yeah, Judge Death is probably on that fucking list. Which makes it even more of a soft 2000 AD movie. Yeah. Like, in the same way hardware feels like that, uh, Split Second very much does, without the uh, legal complications. Yes, but still the Norrington connection. <laughs> which is interesting. And it is just a fucking cool monster. Like, when it shows up, and Rutger Hauer battles this fucking thing, and kills it by Punching into its chest and pulling out its own heart and then blowing the heart away. I don't care if I just spoiled the end of the fucking movie. That's just, I said that as a sentence. That's the end like of the He says a one. He, he gives says a one liner, a one -liner, to a liner and shoots it. <laughs> it is awesome. It's like something from a Don Coscarelli movie. I love it. Yes. 
And it's just so like, because you've never seen a monster that looks like this, it's so weird and demonic looking and it's it's been built up in this Lovecraftian way where it really truly feels malicious and evil. And they're like firing Gatling guns at it and fucking um, Kim Cattrall's there. They're in a fucking half-flooded subway station. Like Kim Cattrall with bonkers. her start. Kim Cattrall with her Star Trek hair or Star Trek hair. So she has the fucking Miramax bob cut in the future. Yes. <laughs> and she's just in there to be the girlfriend character from pretty much like any 80s action movie. Well, she has to be his dead partner's wife, who he was having an affair with because noir. And she also, um, right before having a shower scene, talks about how um, she's, um, I guess, a psychologist or something, and she's taking care of uh, kids who need help. Like, she just has, like, the most random, like, She's Dr. Lady. Story. Yeah. She's a total Dr. Lady. She, she is Christmas Jones. <laughs> And I want to, like, and you kind of want to roll your eyes at it, but once again, it feels all very intentional. Like, it feels like you're watching a dark place in places. Just like uh, Stone has, he doesn't drink anymore, but he just drinks caffeine. So he's, like, drinking black tea and, like, coffee and, like, he's fucking wash, like, he's brushing his teeth using coffee at one point. Washes his mouth out with coffee while still smoking. By the way, he his big power move is pulling out people's pens from their pockets and stirring his coffee with them, which <laughs> seems like a power move against yourself, because now you got to drink pen coffee. <laughs> and he eats nothing but like um, chocolates, like he gets chocolates from a place and he just fucking downs like chocolate candy like you get in like a heart box. Oh, dude, all I could think of when rewatching this was fucking jo uh, Johnny Blaze and his jelly bean addiction. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much that kind of move. It's the same wheelhouse, yeah. So it's like, it's so weird. So instead of like pounding whiskey and shit, he's like just hopped up on caffeine and sugar the entire movie. eating movies. candy like he's a giant baby. He's just it's, a big lunkhead. It's so weird. And he's like wearing fashion specs. <laughs> This hey, he looks like fucking Bateau from Ghost in the Shell. Or yes, something. which may, which might be intentional as well. I don't know. Also, we've got we've got to talk about your favorite moment in this film. The greatest, like this was the original. Shit just got real before Michael Bay gave us shit just got real. <laughs> Dick Durkin. They're they're all they're they both have they've both weaponed up like they're fucking strapped to the nines oh there's They're an the entire sewers. sequence of them at the armory with an old man no you can't have that future gun and then just they over load and up. over and <laughs> and durkin just keeps saying we need bigger guns over and over and over again and he's like he's smoking a cigar now and shit and then also <laughs> the then they just go buzz. Yes, and then they just go back to Stone's apartment because they don't know where the fuck the thing is, so they don't know how to find it, so they just, they're just, like, loaded up with giant guns and, like, straps and, like, all this ammo and shit. But there's, a just sit, says, there's a line where a character says, there's a line where character says, no, not that grenade, that'll take out an entire city block, and Stone's like, good, get two. 
<laughs> They're just gonna destroy the world, taking down this one dude. And it's also just a flashbang, because I don't know if they knew what flashbangs were. No. So they're on the other side of this door in this fucking subway. They both got these Gatling shotguns, which shoot laser shotgun shells. And Durkin says that, um, like, this thing may think it's Satan, and for all intents and purposes, it might be Satan. <laughs> to which Stone replies, yeah, Satan's in deep shit. And then kicks down the door, and they run in with their future guns blazing. <laughs> It is the greatest scene in fucking cinematic history. I have gone back and rewatched this fucking scene a hundred times since then. It's my favorite goddamn thing. I think Rutger Hauer with a cigar in his mouth and a giant anime gun saying Satan's in deep shit before kicking down a door. <laughs> Maybe his finest moment as an actor. It's true. By the, way, by the way, Hauer does so much with that cigar. I am obsessed with him lighting it at the beginning. That that is a man who has smoked cigar. Who has smoked cigars before? It's like he lights it, looks at it, blows on it lightly to get the flame really stoked, and then takes a big drag. You know what reminds me of? Like weird character stuff. Yeah, you know what it reminds me of? Fucking Donald Pleasant's eating in Dracula. Yes, like he's always doing something with his hands. Yeah, like he's like he's using. Every time he brings out a cigar, you know, like, Howard is, has chosen this, I'm going to smoke at this particular part of this scene. A, pay attention to me now, audience, and B, it's like, <laughs> I'm, this is the moment, it's time to eat this fucking scenery. It has begun. Like, the script by Thompson was originally uh, written with Harrison Ford in mind. And as hilarious. bonkers as that sounds, that would have been worse. Like, I don't want to see Harrison Ford in this role. He wouldn't have had fun with it. Like, Rutger Hauer is having the time of his life bringing dimension to this video game character. Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. It's like, it's made for Hauer. Because Ford would have played it straight. Like, he would have Ford looked at that and they would have... movie. <laughs> yeah, he would have been mad at the movie or, or, or just play it straight or both. And the movie would have been tailored kind of more around that performance for it. Howard looked at it and went, this is fucking fun. Howard was having a lot of fun back then. Yeah, only Howard could do the combination of this, like, really legitimate performance trying to bring humanity to a cartoon character while also leaning in to all that cartoony shit and actually bringing it up, like, bringing it to fruition in a way the script even isn't doing it. It's. I don't think Howard gets enough credit as an actor as being a dude willing to take risks. Like, post-Lady Hawk, Howard was delighted to just be in weird genre shit. And he never really abandoned that fully. Like, he would bounce between prestige stuff and, like, oh, I'll, I'll be in one scene in Sin City. I'll be in your yeah. heavy metal anthology series. You want me to be a yeah. vampire in some no-budget horror movie? Right on. Sure, for the catering cool. and I'm there. I'll be Dracula 3. Fuck, I'll be Hobo with a shotgun. Think about how much he fucking was into Hobo with a shotgun. Like, that's something I don't think that's appreciated much about Howard as an actor. Is I feel like everyone takes him being in a lot of those roles as, as Howard slumming it or just doing a paycheck or like, oh, you know, it's a shame Howard is 
you know, relegated to only like these type of roles and stuff like that. Howard was, yeah, there was definitely like stuff. Howard was like, oh, it kind of sucks. Howard has to be in this because maybe he's not getting a lot of other shit or whatever. But 99% of the time, Howard just wanted to do something different and interesting. Like he wasn't stuffy about acting or performances or genres. So the the script for a split second excited him. And it's and Howard's not an idiot. Like so he's not like being excited by like a like a lot of you know like a B actor would or something. He's an A plus 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 actor who is like, yeah, I'll be a hobo with a shotgun. Let me this is bring not Jamie fucking. Ken- this is not Jamie Kennedy thinking Son of the Mask is going to give him Jim Carrey's career. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's something that I think this movie really fucking highlights about Howard. And it's why I I was I I watched it to um to honor Howard after his death. I wanted to watch something I hadn't seen Howard in. You know, I just didn't want to watch. Re- no, I just didn't want to just do the Blade Runner, or the Hitcher rewatch or something like that. It's like, oh, this is something I've never heard of. That fucking Howard is into this future noir movie. This sounds interesting. And it's funny how it's such a, despite it not being a dramatic performance. Despite it being kind of almost this Adam Westy fucking gonzo insanity of a performance in this just grungy fucking action horror movie that somehow wasn't direct to video, it is a beautiful surmising of Howard as an actor. It's what made Rutger Howard special. Like you, it's it, it shows it in a way that a straight one of his straight dramas or one of his big fucking huge roles or even one of his more pop culture roles uh, would show off. Like Split Second shows off Howard doing everything at once. Like this is what's special about him. It's it's what is missing from film now that Howard is gone is his ability to love everything. That's in the medium of movies. So he can go between all these different things and give fully into it creatively. I think uh, what sums it all up is uh, my favorite Rucker Hauer story, which is uh, Hauer around this period of time was getting very uh, interested in directing. Like I mentioned before, he had a hand in the rewrites for Split Second. When interviewed on set, he said he was a about ready to just direct a movie himself and make that his new career, which unfortunately never really panned out besides some short films. But not too long after this, he went on to tank Roger Avery's second uh, role in the director's chair. Uh, I think it was a Mr. Stitches. And by by just caring about the movie a little too much to the (laughs) point where he just threw out the script and they had to rewrite the movie around his improv. Yeah, and which fucked it up so badly. It its eventual fate was being the very first Sci-Fi Channel original movie. So, <laughs> thank you for that, Rutger. <laughs> but when asked uh, if he would work with him again, Roger Avery said, "Absolutely. I hope next time we're making the same movie. But no, I want to work with Rutger Hauer again. It's fucking Rutger Hauer." Uh, I- I'm I'm gonna miss Rutger Hauer. He, like, Rutger Hauer is, in many ways, movies. Dude cared. Like, he, even when in his most asshole of moments, 
he never really turned anybody off from wanting to to work with him because he he had something to bring even if occasionally it didn't work out yeah, he's a he was an artist whether he was in something that would give him awards and critical acclaim or if he was just in a direct-to-video sci-fi movie playing a mad scientist or something. like Much like uh, Vincent Price before him, much like Malcolm McDowell or Christopher Walken, the man was there to just make you happy. We're going home, Kevin. We're going home. I don't know why I had to bring in Elijah Wood's <laughs> severed head into it, but it seemed appropriate, weirdly. No, before we leave, I just have one final button to just let you know at home. How amazing it is that this film exists <laughs> outside of everything else we've told you. Now, this movie originally had a score by Wendy Carlos, who, uh, of course, uh, composed The Shining, Tron, A Clockwork Orange, pretty much created synth music as we know it. She's a legend. She was going to give a prestige score to this film. Unfortunately, you can't listen to it. Unless you got about $100 to put down on an out-of-print CD, the closest you can do is track it down and hear samples. But what I heard was very reminiscent of The Shining, but with weird, like, industrial shit thrown out, like, thrown in there, like, crashing noises and stuff. It was very jarring and would have made for a much, like, an even more chaotic experience. Uh, they went for a slightly more safe, option with a second score by Francis Haynes who scored the fucking opening of Return of the Living Dead and Stephen Parsons who scored among other things The Howling 2 Your Sister is a Werewolf. So if you did not think that this movie could get more genre no 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 my friend through the power of Rucker Hauer this is the nexus of genre. All that's missing is a credit by John Carpenter or something. And for that reason and every other reason we've mentioned, you've got to check out Split Second. It's on Prime. It's a good way to spend an hour 20 if you're in the mood for it. Definitely. God, I want Scream Factory to fucking do a primo release of this movie at some point. It's on Blu-ray. It's, yeah. it's still in print. You can find it. You can totally and there's buy no it. way Scream there's no way Scream Factory is not very aware of this film. But if we can start a campaign right here, right now to get this done, fucking come on, come on, shout. Let's 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 do this. We'll do commentary for it. <laughs> we'll be the two people who do commentary for Split Second. I just want to say, Split Second is, I would say, the official box office pulp movie from now on. It's like one of the fake movies we'd make up in an after credit scene to an episode. I'm still kind of convinced I died like when I pressed play and this has all been like one long Jacob's Ladder. Mike, I uh, hate to inform you this, but we did flood in 2008. God damn it. Why? Why? Why couldn't my Jacob's Ladder dream involve Elizabeth Pena? Uh, but until next time. If you would like to listen to more mini bops or full bops or bops of uh, mid-range size, we have our full archive up on boxofficepulp.com. You can check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. Leave us a rating and a comment. 
And be sure to check us out on Twitter as well if you want to know what Cody's doing about 9.45 on a weekend. Usually alcohol or Lego related or some combination of both. Combination. Always a combination. And occasionally we actually talk about movies, so uh, worthwhile follow. Hey. And, uh, well, because I'm meaner than Cody and he's not here, get the fuck out of here. Oh, <gasps> shade. My goal in life from now on is to is to live up to the legend of Dick Durkin. And like that, he's gone. So do you get the impression that at the time Thompson was dating a L.A. chick who was really into astrology? It does feel a lot like this is a lot of shit that he had to hear while just trying to, like, watch TV. And he just had no choice but to absorb it. It just feels like after sex talk where you have to pretend to be really interested. So you just keep going, mm-hmm, oh, oh, Sagittarius, interesting. And you walk out of the shower and there's a fucking um, star map on the floor and she's about to do your reading. Am I getting too becomes, detailed? just becomes your own personal version of Split Second. <laughs> That girl took out my heart and stole it. Wait, is that just the origin of the monster? Just <laughs> somebody got like really into crystals and shit, and that was the escalation. That's a slip. I've said this for years. Crystals are a slippery fucking slope. Oh, if I see anyone start talking about crystals, I leave. No, I, that's like being racist. That's no, that's that's a hard pass. Instant deal breaker. It's like you're spiritually racist. <laughs> like, that's just, that's just the old version of being an anti-vaxxer. Saying that, um, aliens did in fact build the pyramids. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.